Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Exploring Revelation podcast. Last time, so a few weeks ago now, we were in Revelation 1, 4 through 6. We focused our attention on the words grace and peace here as as John directs his letter to the seven churches in Asia. We talk about how John speaks of the the Trinity and how Christ is introduced here as the, the prophet, the priest, and the king of those who are his. That is in verse five. I, I won't get into to that. You can always go back and, and listen to it. What I would like to do for the rest of our time today is just to talk about the, the last portion of verse five and then uh, verse six. And if you remember last time, you, you probably don't unless you just listened to it. But I, I said that our salvation and the sovereignty of God are really connected here. Now, I know this isn't a popular theme with many. For a lot of Christians, the sovereignty of God is something that we believe and that we should highlight until it comes to God's role in salvation. In those instances, for some reason, it is the person that must hold all of the cards, or at least they must hold the winning hand. So to connect the sovereignty of God when it comes to salvation isn't popular in some circles, I know, but I will also say that it is really important. Actually, the importance of God's sovereignty as a role in prophetic literature is extremely important. And I'm sure you've heard someone say something like, I have read the the end of the Bible and I know who wins in the end. Well, that statement could only be said in any seriousness because of the doctrine of God's sovereignty. It is this God that controls and orchestrates history in such a way that his plan comes to fruition and everything happens just as he plans it. He wins in the end. Just think of another prophetic book, the book of Daniel. Uh, There are many places in the book that the sovereignty of God is established, but perhaps None so clear is in chapter four. It's in chapter four that we see the the arrogance of King Nebuchadnezzar. I won't go in and rehash the story. It's in the Bible. You can go back. You can look at it. But just to put it simply, the Lord taught the king a lesson about humility. And the king learned it. The the king had his kingdom stripped from him. He, He lost all reason. He lived like a beast of the field. And it was only in the sheer mercy and grace of God that the king was restored. And after he was restored in in king, as king, we read this. His kingdom is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. It's fascinating to me that the book of Daniel deals with the prophetic. It deals with kings and and kingdoms. It is Daniel It is in Daniel that we learn that Babylon will be overcome by the powers of Medo-Persia, then the rise of Greece, and then Rome pointing to the the time of Messiah and leading up to this. This is 
the God of the universe and he does what he pleases and what he does is always right. Simply, that's a, a great definition of God's sovereignty. God does what he pleases and what he does is always good and always right. Now, this idea of God's sovereignty is something that the most Christians, again, they, they champion, they read the, the clear, this is the, the clear teaching of, of scripture. They see how the, the story unfolds from Genesis through Exodus on through the kings and the prophets. It's just one long tale of God's uh, control. And even though we have no idea what his plan is in many situations, we see that whatever situation that had unfolded, it not only unfolded a way that served the purpose of God, but the situation was planned and orchestrated by God himself as well. We we see this clearly in the story of Joseph. Not only did what his brothers do to him by selling him into slavery, slavery ultimately serve the purpose of God, but God has his hand in all of it from the very start. In Genesis 50, 20, Joseph says that his brothers had evil intentions, but God's intentions in all of it were for the good of Joseph and the great many others that would be kept alive in the midst of famine. It's a little difficult to read that as an, an open theist. And when I say it's a little difficult to read it as an open theist, I actually mean it's a lot difficult to read it as an open theist. An open theist would say that, that God knows everything there is to know at a given moment. But if it hasn't happened yet, then God doesn't know it because it is unknowable. Well, in Genesis 50, it is pretty clear that, that God didn't just have a pretty good idea what would happen, but he planned it and it happened just as he planned it to serve his purpose, which is always right and always good. Now, we said in our last study that in verse five, Jesus is spoken of as the, the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is a, a reference to Jesus as king, but it is important to understand that it's a reference to Jesus as, as king or Lord. And it's a reference to his sovereignty, his total control in his kingdom over all of the affairs of the, of the kingdom and also all of the subjects of that kingdom. Let me say it this way. If Jesus is the ruler of earth's kings, then who is the ruler of you? I mean, we are the subjects of the king. We are the, the subjects of the king's king. Let me put it another way. I live in America. I'm subject to certain laws that are made by the governing authorities. And I have a responsibility to live in obedience to those laws because I recognize that God put governing authorities in their place. Now, I also realize that those ruling authorities over me are subject to the king of all kings. And when those who rule over me rule in a way that I am forced to choose between the will of the, the king of all kings or the earthly rulers over me, then there's no question we obey that God and, and we defy the, the earthly authorities. I just wanted to establish this, right? Establish his God's uh, sovereignty. And I think that most of us are on the same page here, right? God is sovereign. He is in control. Now, when it comes to salvation, there's a, a divergence here. There's are those who will say something like, okay, I can buy this idea of God's sovereignty thing, right? In the case of Nebuchadnezzar, in the case of kings and kingdoms and, um, and all of that. But when it comes to salvation, it just doesn't sound fair. 
In fact, I, I wasn't at Montana Bible College long, and, and one of my professors was talking about the sovereignty of God and salvation, and I piped up with a question, and my question centered around fairness. And uh, I said, wait a moment. Uh, if God determines the in eternity past, who are the elect? That just isn't fair. It means that God essentially passes by others, leaving them to their own devices, and they'll ultimately be lost because God chose one group over another. I remember vividly the, the answer to my question. The professor simply said that fairness actually would leave us all in our sin. You know, for God to be fair, uh, he would leave us all on our own. And, and that is what we deserve. I would say that it was that moment in my life that, that prompted years of reading and, and study. I'd, I don't say that to suggest that I'm some kind of an authority here and you ought to listen to me. I bring that up because I, I wasn't convinced of these things overnight. You know, it wasn't that statement by the professor that, that just said, oh, okay, I, I agree. Uh, there was a lot of wrestling with this. There was a lot of wrestling with the, the scriptures and perhaps that's where you're going to have to go. Uh, there was a lot of conversations with people that believe different things, uh, fellow students in the dorms, professors. I, I remember uh, at one point I, I was supposed to write a, a short 15-page paper on something and it turned into an 85-page paper or so because I was wrestling with a, a number of different things. What I'm saying is that when it when it comes next here, you, you don't have to agree with me. You, you listen to me, uh, yet yet examine these things for yourself, right? Be a good Berean. Don't just say that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound fair. That, that you know, study this, study these things and study it from the, the other perspective. Um, there, there's good people that don't agree with me on this. There's also a great number of people that do uh, great missionaries and pastors and theologians. Um, actually, when I started my study, I found, I found out that a great number of people that I had been drawn to early on in my Christian faith, uh, held to what I'll refer to as the doctrines of grace or God's sovereignty when it comes to salvation. Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, William Carey, right? The father of modern missions movement held this view, along with a great number of other pastors and theologians and missionaries that are, that are alive today and, and are influencing a, a great number of people. Some might be saying at this point, okay, this is all great, but what does it have to do with the book of Revelation? Well, look with me at verse Five in, in chapter one. Uh, we'll start there. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, I want you to see something here, and it, it really shouldn't be anything new. It's really the same thing that we've already said about God's sovereignty. But notice that Jesus. That is the, the him there who loves us and freed us from our sin by his blood. Now, the one that holds to the freedom of choice in the salvation process, right? The wooing of the soul by the spirit, however you put it, the, the freedom there. Where is that in the text? It, it isn't there. And I know some will undoubtedly say, well, it isn't there, but it is in other places. Well, I, I get that. I, I get that you can proof text anything or whatever, and you can go and point out these things from other places. I get that. And, but just, I get that we're going off one text here, but my point is the same. It, it isn't in this text. This text, though, does say some very important things that we need to look at. First of all, it says that Jesus loves us. Who 
does Jesus love here? Well, it's the ones who are freed from their sins by his blood. We must also ask the question, how does Jesus love us? Well, the answer to that question is here too. He loves us by freeing us from our sin by his blood. Notice the theme here in this discussion. It's all about Jesus. Of course, you you see that in the text. The subject is clearly Jesus. At this point, someone will say something like, well, what about John 3.16? The the reason that many go to John 3.16 so quickly here is that it's the most famous verse in the Bible, as it should be. I have no qualms with that. For some emphasis in the in the verse, though, you know, for some, uh, let me say it this way. For some, the emphasis in that verse is on humanity and everyone who will believe, whoever believes. And they suggest that that verse is saying that it is possible for everyone to believe. Jesus loved the world. He gave his only son for it so that whoever believes. And a lot of times people read that and they emphasize that whoever believes. What John is, you know, the question is, what is John trying to communicate here? Is he trying to communicate some kind of universal atonement that Jesus actually died for the sins of everyone in the world and therefore everyone is capable of believing in him? Uh, I I don't think so, right? But in, in other words, is the subject of the verse humanity in that Jesus is essentially saying your sins are paid for. Now, all you have to do is believe. Uh, I would say that's probably not the case. I would say that John 3, 16 is actually saying something very similar to the one that we're looking at in Revelation 1, in that the subject here is God. In the verses leading up to John three sixteen, in Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus, the point has been very clear. The one who is born again is born of the Spirit. The Spirit does the work of regeneration. It is the Spirit of God that gives new life. The Spirit's job isn't to only woo and influence. The the scriptures actually speak of the Spirit doing the work of new birth. So I would suggest that based on the context of John 3.16, the subject is for God. He did what? He loved the world. How did he love the world? He sent his world. He sent his son into the world to die for it. Now, and whoever believes and trusts him is not going to perish but have eternal life. This verse doesn't disagree with what we're saying in Revelation chapter 1. The fact is God is sovereign. Everyone that believes in Jesus is born again by the Spirit. That's just a fact that there will not be people that believe or want to believe or incapable. Of, you know, There's not going to be people that, that desire to believe that are not saved. And there are not going to be people that are uh, saved but do not believe. John 3.16 doesn't say that God didn't predestine the elect from before the foundation of the earth. The verse doesn't suggest that God isn't sovereign in the salvation process. And in fact, I would say that it hints at God's sovereignty in that God is the subject. God's always the subject. The plan of redemption is his plan from eternity past. And it is in his sovereignty that he's going to bring it to pass because he does what he wants and he does it for his own good pleasure, for his glory. And what he does is always good and it is always right. Now, in Revelation chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, we see something else important here. Not only is God the subject when it comes to salvation, that 
is proper to keep that perspective when thinking through this issue. But it's also important here that God's love for is, is that God's love for us and the freedom of sin are very much connected. The freedom from sin and God's love are connected. I want you to see that. Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now, this isn't some kind of universal atonement, but a particular one in that God's love is lavished on those who are freed from their sin. Notice here how the the context really matters. In John 3.16, the love of God is seen and they sent his son into the world. To keep with John's imagery, he sent the light into the darkness. He sent that which was holy and pure into a world that was evil and who would ultimately murder the king's son, right? Remember the, the parable. God was under no obligation to send Jesus. God would have been just and right to let us die in our sin, to pay the the price of our sin against an all-holy God. But his love is displayed by sending his son into the world. Here we don't read the word world in Revelation chapter 1. We read us. He loved us. How? By sending his son into the world. Not what it says here. It says that his his love for us is in that we are freed from our sins. The problem with those on the more Arminian side or the, the freedom side is that freed from their sins doesn't actually mean freedom from their sins. It means uh, potentially freed from their sins. Let me explain. If Jesus died for everyone, meaning that Jesus dealt with the sins of everyone on the cross and left it up to the individual to accept what Jesus has done for them, that makes Jesus a potential savior. Jesus did all he could do, and now it's up to you. These verses say that those who those Uh, who Jesus lavished his love on are the ones that have been freed from sin by his death. In other words, Jesus' death actually accomplished what it intended to accomplish. Do you you see the the difference there? Um, Freedom for some, this this idea of, of freedom from their sin is a potential freedom from their sin. And that's not what this is saying. That's reading into the text. That's reading, uh, uh, motives into the text. It's called eisegesis. It's not drawing out of it. It's, it's putting meaning into it. Not only this, but we are told here that we are made into a kingdom, priest to the God and Father of Jesus for the glory of the Lord himself. In other words, God is accomplishing his purpose of saving those who are his and making them into his special people. And he's doing all of this. Why? For his own glory. I mean, there's doxology here. The, the author, John, goes into, a, into praise for what God is doing. Uh, just listen to a, a couple of passages at this point and, and notice the similarities. In 1 Peter chapter 2, uh, we read this, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be whole, to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, I'm not going to say much about that that text. It's 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 long. There's a ton in there. But notice that the point is clear. God is taking and making a people for his own possession. And the purpose of this is that it might bring him glory because these that he saved proclaim the greatness and the excellencies of the one who called them out of darkness into light. God did that and they proclaim it. So, he didn't just make it a possibility. He actually accomplishes purpose. And we are left as believers with one option. We point to the excellent one who did all of this from start to finish. Let me just uh, point to Ephesians chapter one. I'll, I'll start in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood for the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now, I've witnessed some people do some very funny things with this passage, or at least parts of it. I think that when you take it as a block of text, the meaning of that phrase being chosen in him before the foundation of the world is pretty obvious. But that doesn't stop people from doing what I call hermeneutical gymnastics here. They they take that that phrase was, was chosen before the foundation of the world, and they read that that text and they and they just take it out of its context. And it just becomes something totally different. But here, notice that it's it's part of one of the, the blessings of God. It, it happens, it's, it's God has blessed us in that he chose us before the foundation of the earth, that we were chosen in him. How is it a great blessing if he chose everybody to be chosen and blameless? It just doesn't make his, his sense. It doesn't make the point here. Some would say, Right before the foundation of the earth, that God chooses everyone to be holy and blameless before him, but not everybody will be holy and blameless because they, they choose another path. Well, how is that a great blessing? How is that one of these, these things? You know, I just others say that those that God chooses here are the elect because God looks down at the tables of time and sees who's going to respond to the gospel in, in faith. I mean, we don't have time to really dig into that here in in but even a cursory reading of the, the text here doesn't lend itself to that interpretation or any of these interpretations, right? It just doesn't make sense that, that we're blessed in God, in, in something he does, in that ultimately it's something that, that we do and that God looked down the tables of time and saw. It, it doesn't make any sense. The clear meaning of God choosing 
before the foundation of the world is that these had nothing to do with their choosing, that God in his sovereignty had a plan. And that plan would just unfold as God desired it to happen. And it would all happen for his glory. We read that he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and that his and that this was done according to the purpose of his will. Over and over in the text, you see that God started something before the foundation of the earth and that he's going to accomplish it. He chooses He chooses you. He predestined you. For what? To be united with Christ through adoption. This is the, the same person, right? This person that he's talking about that has the forgiveness of sin, the redemption through his blood. This is the, the us, the we that we keep seeing in this passage. And that us and we can't mean one thing. Uh, on one hand, it can't mean every person and then also mean those who will have their sins forgiven by the blood of Jesus, right? It, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, either the blessings are a blessing for a, a specific group uh, in which God has redeemed them and a particular people, or uh, it, it's not, and it doesn't make sense. So in the first chapter to the book of Philippians, Paul says, the good work that was started on us by God will be completed by him. Uh, the author of Hebrews refers to the author and perfecter of our faith. And that is Christ over and over again in the scriptures. We see uh, the truth that we are not in control. We are not in control of nations. We're not in control of our lives. We're not in control of our salvation. God is. He is sovereign. He's in total control. And some will say, yeah, but man, this just is not an appealing truth. Uh, you know, if this is true, that, that God is in total control in this area, it's just not appealing for a, a few reasons. Um, now, I think it is appealing. I think this is in a very appealing doctrine. I think it's a good doctrine. Let me give you just five. They're not all, they're not exhaustive list of reasons why this doctrine is important and and appealing to me, but it's, it's some, um, let me just give you five here. Uh, one, if it were possible that the ultimate deciding factor in my salvation was me, then I couldn't be saved, right? If the scriptures are, are clear on this, particularly in Romans 3, if it's truthful, then there is not anyone righteous. There's no one who seeks after God, right? The um, Isaiah tells us that we, we like sheep. We've gone astray. And the picture there is, is extremely vivid. We cannot choose God. We have gone astray. We need God to call us to himself. Uh, secondly, the truth is appealing because God in his sovereignty always does what is right and good, right? If, if salvation is in the hands of a sovereign God, we can always trust that ultimately what happens is good, just, right. It's always perfect because it's God's plan and God is bringing about his plan. It's not just a potential plan. It's not God sitting up there hoping that, that what happens is the way he wants it to happen. Third, God's sovereignty gives me confidence in the area of evangelism, right? Knowing my role in evangelism is important. The Christian is part of God's plan and redemption. This is how God accomplishes his sovereign purpose in the world. Does God need us to accomplish his purpose? No, but he chose to, that this would be the avenue. This would be the, the means by which God's plan unfolds, that God would save people by using other saved people to tell them about 
this truth, to tell them about the story and the, and the grace and the mercy that they've received from God alone. The Christian wants to be obedient. They want to be used by God because of how God had been so good to them. It, it just, it, it makes a, a lot of sense. The, the Christian then uh, doesn't become the, the linchpin on which God's plan of redemption rest. They become the the vessel in which God accomplishes his purpose in the world. Um, it, it's, a, it's a marvelous truth and it, and it bolsters um, our courage uh, when it comes to evangelism, knowing that God is in control of all of this. Fourth, the doctrine here is appealing because it does not produce pride or boasting. If God did all of these things in hopes that we would respond to the gospel, but ultimately it is our free choice and up to us, that would produce pride. It should produce boasting because there would be something in us that in some reason why we chose Christ and we believe the gospel where others didn't. Why wouldn't we look at those who reject the gospel and see them as deficient in some way? Because they are. They're not as smart. They're not as capable um, we would have to see ourselves as better in some respect because we chose they didn't. Uh, fifth, going along with that, the reverse is true. The doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation produces humility. When one recognizes their unworthiness of God's grace toward them and contemplates what Christ has done for them to take an unworthy sinner uh, apart from any merit or goodness or ability of their own and draw them to himself to allow them to see the truth and the beauty of the gospel, that they would freely then respond to it, to just contemplate that produces humility and gratefulness that I would say expresses itself in a life of obedience to him who saved them. Now, perhaps you have more thoughts here besides these five. I, I would welcome those. I would love to, to hear them. Uh, and I would put them on the, the podcast. I know that there is so much more here that we didn't have time to talk about and cover in this podcast. If there are questions, ask them. I'd love to hear them, uh, bring them up on the, on the show um, or anything else related to the, the study of Revelation, just visit exploringrevelation.com. Email me, email me at coltr, that's C-O-A-L-T-R at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. So until next time, when we explore uh, Revelation together, um, have a good week.